Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 477 for April 1st, 2019. On today's show, bassist Mappa Elliott. Please support the show by becoming a member for just $5 a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. We're at the beginning of a membership campaign with the goal of making the show weekly by January 1st, 2020. To do that, we need to reach 200 members. We're currently at 32, which is about 16% of the way there. Again, visit thejazzsession.com slash join to become a member today for just $5 a month. Mappa Elliott is the founder of the band Mostly Other People Do the Killing. His new triple album under his own name is called Jazz Band, Rock Band, Dance Band. It features three different ensembles interpreting his music. excited and I think probably about 11 years overdue to have uh, my guest this week on the show. Mappa Elliott just released a, uh, a triple album called Jazz Band, Rock Band, Dance Band. It is completely fabulous and I have really enjoyed listening to it and it's great to have you on the show, Mappa. Thanks so much. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. So there is everything in this three album set. I guess not literally everything, but there's a whole lot of stuff. Uh, you know, everything from uh, you know, Careless Whispers to 24th Century Schizoid Man and Beyond, and it all of it just is right in my wheelhouse, and I've completely enjoyed it. And so I kind of have some kind of feeling that we might have similar uh, both tastes in music and in uh, the kind of performative, like, I don't know about comedic, but slightly tongue-in-cheek approach uh, to performing music sometimes. Is that a fair... Um, maybe. Uh, I'm not sure how. Uh, I'm not sure how much my tongue is in my cheek. Uh, I, I mean, I think that that's that, that's an interpretation that uh, I get a lot of in lots of the music that I make. Um, but I think that the there's definitely a humorous aspect, which you were definitely picking up on. Um, but I think part of the the humor comes from the the fact that there's actually a really intense sincerity. It's just the, the things that I'm sincere about tend to not be the same kinds of things that other people are sincere about on a musical level. Yeah, I think that's very fair. And actually, as soon as you started describing that, that is really what what I meant. I don't mean that you are playing this music, like especially in the in the uh, rock band section, unspeakable, the unspeakable garbage section, uh, which is where to me that that comes most to the fore. It does seem like a genuine love of the kind of like over the top '80s rock, rather than an ironic comment on it. I don't I don't get that impression at all. But uh, hearing that with that instrumentation is so out of context that I think it's one of those things that can make you laugh maybe as much with joy as anything else as you're hearing it being played. Yeah, um, I, I think that the the lack of a singer and kind of use of the saxophone as the melody instrument, I'm realizing uh, really uh, affects how people perceive and listen to that band um, because conceptually and in the execution and the way we're playing and, you know, to my ears, it's as straight ahead an 80s rock band as in, as possible. And if you were to take the saxophone out and substitute, you know, David Lee Roth circa 1983, nobody would be very surprised just to hear him fronting a band made up of electric guitar, electric bass, 
you know, piano, synthesizer, organ, keyboard player, and drums. But because the lead voice is a saxophone, it, it enters this other kind of more confusing or less direct musical space that I think opens up a lot of interesting doors for both us and for listeners because it, it, it kind of prevents you from approaching it in as predictable a way. And so it's kind of, you're, you're approaching the you know very straightforward vocabulary of 80s rock from this perspective that, that bypasses a lot of the prejudices people would have about that and kind of, you know, typical uh, 80s rock uh, histrionics and theatrics that lead singers are known for. The way you began that statement, is that something you've discovered from feedback of people listening to it or something that was intentionally built into the makeup of the band? Um, feedback from people listening to it. Over the years, I've gotten really used to the the idea that uh, the way I conceive of and execute and hear music and kind of my intent is very often not what people wind up hearing for one reason or another. And that's a, a really fun and constantly interesting, stimulating way of interacting with other people through art, which, you know, hopefully is the point of what everybody's doing. Um, but I, I'm always kind of intrigued to hear how other people hear this music and I'm extra intrigued at how different a lot of people's perspectives are from mine um, and and one of the from talking to people about the rock records unspeakable garbage one of the recurring themes is how you know people think that it's this very strange or unique sound and that you know it's this kind of taking this vocabulary and twisting it around uh, whereas to my ears, it's it's probably the, the least twisting around I've done in an ensemble, and it sounds almost, it was intentionally almost generic to the point of we're going for this very straightforward, fun 80s rock thing. The fact that the lead voice is a saxophone, and not just a saxophone, but John Aravagon playing the saxophone, I think really alters people's perceptions because we aren't used to hearing saxophones fronting rock bands, even when the, you know, most of the notes that they are playing, you know, could be identically replaced by a vocalist and it would be a much more conventional sound to the point of almost, you know, kind of cliche, very obvious cliche. As is uh, often the hallmark of an interview on this show, I feel like I've started in the middle. I think listeners often think like they missed the first 20 minutes where I did the setup and we described the album. So I think that's a good sign, man. Yeah, no, I think <laughs> I think so too. So now I'm going to make up for my own deficiencies as an interviewer and uh, describe this record a little bit, or at least its uh, its structure. So as I said at the sure. beginning, it's called Jazz Band, Rock Band, Dance Band, and there are three ensembles on the album, Advancing on a Wild Pitch, which is, you know, the, and we're using all these terms kind of heavy-handedly, but the jazz band, and then Unspeakable Garbage, which we were just talking about, the rock band, and then Acceleration Due to Gravity, the dance band. So I guess my first question is, uh, my first question, that's hilarious. My 15th question <laughs> yeah. is, did you feel like you, you had things to say that you couldn't express in your, you know, for example, and most other people do the killing? Did it seem like, okay, I've got a lot of other stuff I want to get out there, and I need different arrangements of people in order to do that. Is that kind of what led to this tr triple L? Uh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, 
over the last, you know, 14 years or 15 years or whatever it's been, man, time goes by fast, 16 years. Um, however long most of the other people do the killing has been a band, um, that ensemble has cultivated a very specific way of performing music. Um, and it's uh, kind of primary, uh, the vocabulary that it's using is the, you know, the jazz canon. And uh, that's still, you know, my working ensemble. That's still very much the band that I am, you know, both most associated with and most invested in artistically. But I did very much feel that there were a lot of other things that I wanted to do that most of the other people do the killing is definitely not the right vehicle to use. And so uh, a couple of years ago, I did a solo bass album. And then this triple album represents three other bands that do very different things, musically speaking, all things that I, I feel really strongly about and, you know, don't feel that most of the people do the killing is the right place for any of these musical concepts. And so, yeah, these are all ensembles that I put together specifically to do, you know, very drastically different styles of music that I also feel really strongly about and didn't have any other way of approaching. off the Red Sox Pirates game to call you. So let's talk about uh, advancing on a wild pitch, uh, which is... Oh man, getting in there, getting in there real early. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. No, I'm... Uh, I, it's the best time of the year every year. So, um, cool. so uh, yeah, tell me about advancing on a wild pitch. I mean, in the in the press materials for the record, it makes note of the fact that everybody's an avid baseball fan and obviously the title comes from a thing you can do in baseball. Um, uh, beyond the shared love of the game between the players. Is there anything else about the sport that, that bleeds into the music or is that just a, you know, kind of a convenient naming convention? Uh, it's a convenient naming convention, but it's also kind of, you know, uh, the, the importance of the social cohesion of the musicians involved, I guess is what, what I would highlight. And so, you know, one of the things about playing music with other humans is you're, interacting in a very specific way with other people 
to express artistic ideas and finding other musicians who are both, you know, artistically and socially uh, compatible with your worldview is part of, you know, being a band leader and forming ensembles and, you know, like people need to be able to get along to some extent most of the time um, in order to make music together. And that group of people, uh, at one time or another, we all lived in Astoria. And so we crossed paths and interacted at various Astoria jam sessions and, you know, hangs with musicians. So it was a very similar local community. And we are also from, you know, the most avid baseball fan I can think of in Sam Kulik uh, to the rest of us are, are pretty, and none of us is a casual baseball fan. Um, and so one of the reasons why that band formed was it was a group of people that, you know, sometimes we'll get together and rehearse music and other times we'll get together and, you know, watch a baseball game. And that kind of social cohesion makes for a very comfortable music making. And then in addition to that, uh, all four of those guys to my ears have very distinct and well-developed individual artistic voices within the traditional jazz idiom and language and kind of that, you know, classic era of fifties and sixties, so-called straight ahead or classic jazz if i was going to play in that style the kind of artistic validity of that style is really dependent on the improvisers having really distinct voices because at this point there are hundreds of thousands of saxophone players who can play the changes to any one of those tunes perfectly correctly but that's very different from having like a very individualized concept that, you know, all four of those guys really have. Like, I don't, I can't think of another player on any of those instruments who sounds anything like those guys, which is kind of the, the benchmark. That's what we're all as jazz musicians shooting for the kind of stereotypical blindfold test where, you know, if you listen to 15 baritone saxophone players, I'm reasonably confident that anybody who's paying attention would be able to pick Charlie Evans out fairly quickly. Uh, you know, nobody plays like that. And, you know, Danny Fox on piano, Sam Kulik on trombone, and Christian Coleman's drumming is very, very idiosyncratic, uh, especially for someone who you know, works in gigs as much as he does. And am I right in thinking this is the only place on the record or the, the records where any tunes that had been performed previously by most of the other people do the killing appear? Is that right? That is correct, yes. But for anyone who's familiar with them from that book, I mean, they sound very, very different. It's, you know, a, they sound a complete very, very reimagining. Different. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, that was twofold. On the one hand, there are several, most of the other people, tunes that, um, kind of have have been in the book and played frequently because there are things about their structure that it's really fun to play. And that band was conceived as um, a group that would play those compositions in a more traditional style, meaning maintaining the form and, you know, maintaining a unified time signature and or a key signature and or concept of music, um, which most of the people do the killing deconstructs things fairly rapidly um and then there were a couple other tunes on that uh, for advancing on a wild pitch that i had written for mostly other people do the killing and we had you know learned and rehearsed and they never really worked in that ensemble for one reason or another um and so i believe slab is one of those tunes 
and uh, Orland is one of those tunes um, that I, you know, originally wrote as most of the other people tunes, but we never wound up, you know, recording them because they weren't right for that ensemble. But when I brought them into this ensemble, they worked great. Uh, let's take a listen to Slab from the Advancing on a Wild Pitch break from the show to talk about our fundraising campaign. For this show to become weekly, I need to get to 200 subscribers. I think we can make it happen by the end of this year. We're 16% of the way there now, thanks to our 32 current members, which is awesome. To reach 200 by the end of the year, we need to add 10 members every two weeks. So let's check the big board to see how many people joined in the past two weeks since we launched this membership campaign. Nobody, huh? Oh. Okay. Okay, not to worry. Well, well, maybe a bit to worry, but we could definitely do this. It's awesome that you listen. It's even awesomer if you become a member, and it's super easy, and it's not that expensive. Here's how it works. You go to thejazzsession.com slash join. You pledge $5 a month. That's the only membership level. That gets you a bonus episode every month. Plus, during the hiatus in the summer, when no one else is getting anything, you'll be getting new episodes, which is really cool. So again, go to thejazzsession.com slash join today. And now back to the show. Slab, uh, played by Advancing on a Wild Pitch, one of the three ensembles on jazz band, rock band, dance band, Mappa Elliott's new triple album. We already mentioned Unspeakable Garbage, and so let's dig into Acceleration Due to Gravity, which is, uh, I guess, a, a kind of a collective, but formed out of you and George Burton knowing each other for a long time, right? The pianist in this section. Correct. Yeah. George and I met uh, back in 2000. We are both uh, alumni of the sadly now defunct Pennsylvania Governor's School for the Arts, um, which was a five-week summer program for high school students in Pennsylvania um, that was a very intensive kind of artist's colony kind of thing. Uh, it was for uh, visual artists and creative writing and theater and dance and music. And uh, George was a year ahead of me in school, so he was a student before. Uh, but we both went back as uh, instructors. And so we met when we were both working there. Um, 
I think we spent four consecutive summers working together at the governor's school. One of those summers, my little brother was a student um, and, you know, spent a lot of time with, with me and George. And um, George and I have had this, you know, pretty close friendship for years and years now. Uh, but our musical styles and kind of the, the circles that we fly in, uh, while they occasionally overlap, are, are, are pretty different. And so for years, I'd been thinking about, you know, what kind of ensemble I could put together that you know, both George and I would, uh, would play in. And one of the things about George, George's piano playing that I really like is just his uh, ability to just be incredibly intense, you know, whenever he wants to. Like, he's got this kind of overdrive switch that he can engage that's like, you know, really breathtaking to hear when he's playing kind of straight ahead or modern jazz. And so one of the things about this band, Acceleration Due Gravity, is that it's kind of predicated on the idea that we're making music that is, it starts off at 10 and it never comes down. There's, there's you know, very little space. It's very dense. It's very high energy. It's, you know, relentless. And then it's over. And so... Um, it's not music that's about development and it's not music that's about, you know, slow buildups. It's about kind of being cranked up to 11 in a spinal tap kind of way, uh, you know, right from the downbeat. And, you know, George, who takes the first solo on the record, you know, that becomes really obvious within about half a second. And so this is in the, the dance band section uh, of this triple album. Can you talk about the idea of dance music as it relates um, to Acceleration Due to Gravity? Yeah, um, dance music in, in general, and this is true in most places and most times, is very beat heavy, uh, or at least that's the part of it that I, I gravitate towards, that if you're, if you're going to be moving your body to music um, in most of the world, you are doing that to something that has like a very definite and um, heavy beat. Um, and in American music and, you know, specifically jazz and other black American music, um, you wind up with this, you know, kind of heavy beats plus like the heterogeneous sound ideal where you've got like lots of layers of contrasting sounds, which eventually give us, you know, the combination of instruments that we get in American music, uh, with you, you've got a drum set made up of widely varied percussion instruments. And then you've got, you know, bass and some mid-range things and high-range instruments and horns and stuff. Um, but dance music, be it jazz or rock and roll or hip-hop or any kind of derivative of those things, is in this country, for the most part, centered around a very heavy 4-4 beat most of the time. And there are lots of ways to approach that. And so that album was an exploration of tunes with pretty short forms that have, you know, very heavy, uh, four, four beats with a few slight exceptions. Um, and these kind of cycles that, uh, a lot of kind of African American music and even coming from, you know, like music of the African diaspora and West African drumming music does this a bit. There's a lot of cyclical playing where you've got repeating structures that are, you know, simple. And then if you layer enough of them, and they don't all repeat at the same time. You get these contrasting um, loops, uh, to use kind of modern music production jargon, um, that, that generate these these dance pieces or mu music for dancing that is based on this heavy beat and these repetitive structures. Um, and so if you go back to 
you know, uh, all of the music that this is based on is from, you know, post-World War II, but, you know, the, the jump blues and early rock and roll through, you know, funk and R&B and musics that lead up to hip-hop, um, you've got these kind of r- repetitive forms and cycles that are fairly short, as opposed to, like, the long-form compositions of, you know, the, the classic American songbook. Um, and so... Uh, I kind of really thought about that, and and I wrote these tunes based on these looping forms that never do an exact repeat. Um, Like every cycle, something changes, if not several things. But it's in a a very static zone for the entire time, uh, despite always being a little bit different. Uh, So that's basically how I conceived of that music. Well, let's check out one of these tracks. Uh, all all of the song titles, with the exception of one, I think, uh, come from Pennsylvania town names. There's one. Of, oh, the... oh, that one comes from a Pennsylvania town too, but just unintentionally. Oh, does it? Okay. There is a town in Pennsylvania called Power. Oh, that isn't even the one I was thinking of. I thought the one oh. called Rocks, comma MD was a town in Maryland. Correct. It is a town in Maryland. Yep. Okay. That's Doctor. It's pronounced Doctor Rocks. Oh, is it? Okay. <laughs> That's fabulous. <laughs> well, I'm definitely moving immediately. Um, but let's check out one of the acceleration due to gravity tracks. I'll uh, I'll pick the one that I live closest to, and I've actually made music in uh, the town of Waddle. Here it is. From the acceleration due to gravity section, uh, that was Waddle. Man, this whole, <laughs> this one of the amazing things about like a triple album is, you know, it's a it's a gutsy move, like to fill up three records worth of music. And so uh, I don't receive that many triple albums for that reason, I think. And uh, <laughs> and the the few times it's happened in the past often by the time you're in the third record, you're like, right. OK, I get it. Yeah, I. I dig. I, I thank you very much at this point. This one, I, you know, they're so different that, I mean, you really, you know, if you mailed these one at a time to without 
any, you know, just blank CDs or something, mailed them to three different people and said, you know, okay, tell me, are these, this, which band is this? They just, these are completely different projects. And it, it makes it just a thrill to listen to because although they have, you know, some shared vision that runs throughout, uh, which is obviously you, um, <laughs> the, the fact that such disparate music is made from, you know, the brain of one person plus, you know, the collective brains of all these other people is pretty impressive. I mean, I, I was really amazed as I was listening to these at how much, not only did my interest not flag, but it felt like it just kept reawakening over and over again, which which I think is pretty amazing. Is a, It's a pretty pretty incredible thing to have achieved. This is just me complimenting you, I guess. Oh, yeah, man. I, I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just do, uh, do want to mention before we continue that a lot of the people who are on this record have been on the Jazz Session, so if folks want to dig in deeper, uh, you can go to thejazzsession.com, and in the archives, you will find interviews with uh, Charlie Evans, Danny Fox, uh, John Arabagon, uh, Nate Woolley, Brian Murray, uh, and I think that's it. So uh, all of those folks are in the archives if you want to check out some more stuff by all of them. Have these ensembles each had live performance opportunities as well where they brought together for this uh, record? Tell me a little more about the the history of these bands, uh, you know, and how much they've been able to play. Yeah, uh, they've all had performance opportunities, but to, to varying degrees. Um, the the Straight Ahead band, uh, Advancing on a Wild Pitch, uh, played a couple of shows in 2017-2018 uh, as we were kind of developing how that band was going to play. Uh, and other than that, it's not really a working band. So you know, every once in a while, an opportunity for a performance will come up, but um, that's, you know, that ensemble was put together kind of for this project and hopefully we'll continue to play, but that's not, you know, super high on my priorities list. Um, the, the rock band, unspeakable garbage, uh, is becoming like a, a fairly frequently performing ensemble. Um, and that's partly due to the enthusiasm of the other band members, um, as, uh, especially uh, drummer Dan Monahan and guitarist Nick Millivoy, both of whom live in Philadelphia, um, they've both been very supportive and encouraging to you know book more gigs with that band, uh, both you know in New York and Philadelphia and the surrounding environs. Um, and because it's such a different ensemble than the music that we all play in our mm, other musical lives. Um, those shows wind up being, you know, really, really fun for everybody involved. And so I think that band, we're trying to keep that band playing just because it's the kind of thing that none of us really gets the opportunity to do outside of that band. Acceleration due to gravity and uh, advancing on a wild pitch are a little bit different. What no kind problem. of venues does Unspeakable Garbage play in? Because, like, for example, I live in a college town. I live in State College, Pennsylvania. And if I walked right. into one of our bars on a Friday night and I heard the music that Unspeakable Garbage plays, I would think, thank you, baby Jesus. This is the greatest, like, bar band I've ever heard. Um, and so it seems like it could be equally at home there as, you know, kind of in a more traditional improvised music setting. So I'm curious about where you've played. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, bo both of those things uh, have happened. We've played in kind of, uh, you know, very DIY, you know, bar venues, um, both in Philadelphia and in New York. And we've also played at more traditional, you know, uh, performance venues. Uh, a lot of the music that I make these days is at Shapeshifter Lab in Gowanus, Brooklyn. So, you know, we've played there a couple of times and various other, you know, 
uh, venues around New York where, you know, it would be equally plausible to hear mostly other people do the killing or, you know, any of the other ensembles that we all, we all play in. Um, so yeah, I mean, the fact that it's, uh, the kind of band that can play just about anywhere is another reason why, you know, we wind up playing with that band quite a bit. Um, and then kind of the other end of the spectrum is the acceleration due to gravity band. And so when we did the CD release show, um, uh, last Friday, um, here in New York, that was the, the first live performance that band had ever had. And part of that is just the logistics of getting, you know, those nine people together. I mean, the only time those nine people were ever together in the same room was at the recording session because, you know, every, every rehearsal in the gig had at least one sub, uh, which is kind of the, the pitfall of putting together kind of like a dream team ensemble like that. I mean, those are a lot of my favorite improvisers are in that band, but, you know, with everyone having incredibly busy schedules, getting all nine people in one room is a, is a really, really difficult, if not impossible thing. Um, and so that's a little bit discouraging in terms of trying to book more gigs for that band be so partly the logistics involved and then partly you know it's nine people that's an expensive band to move around and and you know make uh, the financial commitment to have that band play somewhere it's you know it's different than playing like a, a door gig at a bar with a trio or quintet you know yeah absolutely um there's uh there are two things i wanted to highlight um one in a uh, giving credit where it's due sense and the other in an educating me sense. Um, one is that I remember uh, a long time ago, John Narabagan had a band that played 80s music too, right? Was that, And I think that's kind of, a, oh, yeah. at least to some degree, the, some of the inspiration for Unspeakable Garbage. Is that correct? Very much so. Yes. Uh, uh, should, I, should I talk about that if you, uh, wonderful yeah, project? That would be great. Yeah. So uh, John Narabagan and I have been you know, playing music together in a, a pretty wide variety of contexts since 2003 he's a you know a founding member of most of the other people do the killing and so in the the mid 2000s he put together a band that he called starship's journey a tribute to the music of the 80s and um the the, the premise of this band was that john had transcribed you know 15 or 20 80s pop tunes uh the one that always jumps readily to mind is nothing's gonna stop us now by starship um and he wrote out lead sheets and one premise of the band was there were never rehearsals. So everyone had to sight read. Uh, the instrumentation was variable. So we had different combinations of horns and rhythm section on different gigs. And then we would read the tunes down. And whenever there was an instrumental solo in the song, like a guitar solo or a saxophone solo, John had that written out very meticulously and the entire band would read it in unison. Uh, which, given the way some of the solo sound, would be a total disaster. Um, anyway, that was another one of those bands that was incredibly fun. And so we did a series of gigs uh, at a bunch of venues from, you know, bars to weird performance spaces. Um, and then, you know, both John and I and a lot of other people involved, you know, got busier with other projects and it kind of fell by the wayside. But we've been talking about resurrecting that band for a long time. And so one of the other kind of reasons for forming that ensemble was to kind of, you know, well, John and I want to do this 80s pop band, but instead of doing the Starship's Journey thing, I'm just going to write a book of tunes in that style and we'll play those. Um, and so it's, it's very much in that same kind of, you know, oh my God, this is so fun spirit. You know, it's a, a slightly different version of that same joke. 
and I mean, hats off for the title Starship's Journey, which is just, that oh, was, I mean, that's yeah, an inspired, that's, that's, yeah. Yes, yes. Um, and that's, then, that's, that's, that's all John. Yeah. yeah. Of the, uh, of all the people on this record, there were two uh, whose work I did not uh, know really at all. They were pretty new names to me and, you know, everybody has holes in what they know. So the two people that I didn't oh, yeah. know, and I would love for you to just tell me a little bit about, um, are uh, Christian Coleman, who's in the Advancing on a Wild Pitch section, and Ava Mendoza, who plays in Acceleration Due to Gravity. Could you just say something for my my benefit and maybe any other listeners oh, who, sure. who don't know them? Yeah. So Christian Coleman uh, is, uh, I believe, initially from Nebraska. And there are a few jazz musicians here on the East Coast who kind of uh, came out of that same area of the country at about the same time and all know each other. And so he lives here in western queens uh he lives in long island city and is a you know the the most stereotypical working drummer in new york where he plays two or three gigs a night most of them in queens everything from you know uh backing up singers to playing standards in restaurants and bars to playing you know drums for uh hip-hop ensembles and in the recording studio and he's just this you know really versatile drummer who's essentially living the dream uh, where, you know, he's making a living as a working drummer here in New York. Um, And so in addition to that, his jazz playing is really, really unique. Uh, He swings really hard and his, you know, concept of time is really fluid. And there's something kind of post Elvin Jones about the way that he, he plays in general, but you know, he, he really doesn't sound like anybody but himself. And so I've been, you know, running into him on gigs for, you know, 15 years. And when I was thinking about, you know, drummers that I really want to play straight ahead jazz with, and there are a lot of them here in New York, but Christian is really near the top of the list pretty much all the time, just because, you know, his time feel and his swing feel and just like the way he thinks about, you know, quote unquote, straight ahead or classic jazz is so rich and nuanced and deep uh, that just, you know, playing with him is, is spectacular. And then, you know, Several times a month, I'll be, you know, at a random bar here in the neighborhood and, you know, Christian will be playing with some band and you run into that guy a lot when you live in this part of New York City. <laughs> um, so, yeah, he's he's great. And uh, Ava Mendoza is originally from the Bay Area and we first met in Germany at the Moors Festival, I want to say in about 2014. And so she was there with a large ensemble led by Fred Frith. And this was maybe a 15 or 20 piece ensemble doing, doing his music. And Ava was, you know, very much for me anyway, like the standout soloist of that ensemble. And, you know, I wasn't familiar with her work at all. And that festival is a very, you know, musician friendly, a lot of hanging out happens. And so after the performance, uh, spent some time hanging with Ava and we have a lot of mutual friends, um, she has her own band called Unnatural Ways um, that's pretty spectacular, sometimes instrumental, sometimes she sings. Um, she's done uh, work with both John Robigon and Mike Pride, sometimes together. And her you know, electric guitar playing is really unique, even in a city like New York where there are so many great guitar players. And so she's got this very lyrical quality to her playing, but then she's also really comfortable making, you know, super strange scrunky guitar noises uh and everything in between 
and um, the way that she kind of thinks about the guitar as a solo voice, uh, you know, is unlike the other guitar players that I know uh, in that same kind of like, it's really easy to pick Ava Mendoza out of a lineup of guitar players. Um, and so, yeah, her own projects are great, but she's just really easy to work with. And her playing is like constantly surprising um, because she's got this very, you know, idiosyncratic personal way of approaching, you know, improvising over forms and structures um, that, you know, I just thought was really spectacular. And I wonder, do your do your students know slash care who you are in the context in which you and I are talking? Like, do do uh, they do they, they get? Uh, no, I mean, I uh, I am very much uh, I do I do not talk about any of this at school at all. They don't you know need to know about this. Uh, that's not going to benefit them educationally at all. You know, it's it's pretty frequent that kind of, you know, after graduation, kids who are into music, who then grow up to be, you know, adults who are into music, some of them then, you know, eventually figure out what I do. And, you know, at this point, I've been teaching in the New York area for about 15 years. You know, when I play a gig at this point, former students who are now in their late 20s or 30 will, you know, show up at shows pretty regularly. But I, I, I definitely do not talk about any of this stuff in school. Part of the thing about teaching high school students is, you know, they don't know who Beethoven is, let alone Ava Mendoza. And so <laughs> I very much went into, you know, teaching high school music as a way of giving kids access to just, you know, the, the fundamentals of music. And if they graduate, you know, knowing who Beethoven and Coltrane are, uh, you know, and Billie Holiday, like I've done my job. And then if they're into music and they go deeper than that and I wind up seeing them at a show, that's great. Talking about the, the music that I make in school is not going to serve anybody but kind of, you know, some kind of strange narcissism that I guess I don't have and I, I place elsewhere. <laughs> I don't know, though. I, I I mean, I would have loved to have met someone when I was in school who actually had a career playing music and who who was just doing interesting, creative things with music. I never knew anybody who was 
as excited about music as my friends and I were. And we never really thought other than, you know, we knew the big rock bands we listened to and stuff like that. But all of that seemed completely unattainable. It would have been amazing to meet someone who actually had a career performing music and could explain to us how that could be a thing. Students who are into music, those conversations happen quite a bit. And so, you know, in those contexts, then I'll say, well, right, like I run a record label, you know, so if you have questions about that, I, you know, ask. And, you know, I'm very, very much into discussing how the industry works, but I really stay away from kind of highlighting the music that I make just because that would be like a, a way of kind of trying to present stuff that I have done as opposed to, you know, music that they also don't know about that might be like a better example, you know, again, falling back on Beethoven and Coltrane. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, But I definitely, you know, uh, numerous students who are, you know, interested in being musicians, you know, those are the people that get, you know, all all those questions answered. And that's, that's really fun. But, you know, teaching in a classroom, you know, those students are the minority. I think there's also then a, a difference because like students growing up in New York City, you know, I, I teach in Long Island City and the the Queensbridge housing project is right there. But like, that's where NAS grew up. And so all of these kids kind of come in already having the idea that, you know, anyone, including people just like them, can grow up to be famous musicians if they want to be. And so, you know, the, the idea that uh, they would need me to kind of demonstrate that like, hey, you can have a career in music and perform uh, is not something that in in this part of the world, you know, uh, I think is really necessary as much as if I worked in a rural area or not in a major metropolitan area, then I think that would be like a very important discussion. But, uh, you know, there's, you know, these kids are kind of surrounded by narratives of professional musicians, both kind of on a very DIY scale and then all the way up to, you know, Jay-Z performing at the Barclays Center or whatever. Uh, and so, like, the the range here is, is really wide. And so it's always really, really fun working with motivated high school kids. Uh, like these days, most of them are into computer music. You know, they start off you know, they would say making beats, but then eventually kind of become composers. Those students always ask a lot of questions and are, you know, really energetic and intrigued. But in a classroom setting, you know, you're teaching 35 kids and you're lucky if you've got one or two that fall into that category. And the other 30 something kids, you know, this is the one opportunity in their life that they're going to get any sort of formal music education. So I kind of take very seriously uh, my job is to kind of present the the widest range of stuff as I can. So, you know, no kid is going to graduate from a high school where I teach and like not know who John Cage is. And so, you know, or Coltrane. And so I think that like, you know, that's the thing about the job that uh, is kind of most important to me is just knowing that like, unfortunately in American culture these days, there aren't a lot of places where people access that kind of music uh, and by that kind of music, I mean, you know, non-mainstream pop and hip-hop. And so kind of exposing kids to classical music and jazz and kind of experimental music um, is, a, for me anyway, a really important thing to do because they're not going to get that from, you know, someplace else. And just kind of getting up in front of the class and saying, hey, kids, I make this really weird music, you know, check it out. I think it's the angle that I take is here are all these other people who are really important in the history of music that you should know about. And then if we want to go beyond that, you know, we can we can talk after class. (laughs) Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. That's a much more nuanced answer. The the 
then the first go around, it sounded like, you know, almost like it was a secret that you were, <laughs> that you did anything outside of class. Uh, but no, you're, right. once you expanded on it, I, I completely think that that sounds like it makes a lot of sense. My guest on the show has been Mappa Elliott. Uh, his new triple album uh, on his own Hot Cup Records label is called Jazz Band, Rock Band, Dance Band. I highly recommend it to your attention. And uh, Mappa, what a total pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much, and I hope you'll come back. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun. That's our show. Thanks to Mappa Elliott for being my guest this week. Thank you to the Respect Sextet for the theme music there at respectsextet.com. Dave Rabel designed the logo. Facebook.com slash the jazz session is where you'll find us over there. We're on Twitter at Jazz Sesh, J-A-Z-Z-S-E-S-H. Instagram at The Jazz Session. You can find me personally on Twitter and Instagram at Jason D. Crane and also on Instagram at Your Dad's BMX. Please do rate and review the show on iTunes. It really does help. No one's done it in a while, actually. So if you would like to uh, leave a review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get the show, it really does make a difference. Don't forget, we need you to become a member at thejazzsession.com slash join. It only costs $5 a month. It's a great deal. You get bonus episodes and a whole lot more. Oh, plus, the very first stickers ever are about to go out, too, which is really cool. New episodes on the 1st and the 15th of the month. On April 15th, 2019, my guest will be pianist and vocalist champion Fulton. So come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.